Carl Sigmund, welcome to Fritankes pod. Thank you. Uh, you're a professor of mathematics at the University of Vienna and you're one of the pioneers in the evolutionary game theory area. Could you just explain what that is? What does it mean? Evolutionary game theory? Yes. Well, game theory is uh, uh, the mathematical theory of conflicts. Mm-hmm. Conflicts which occur always whenever two or several persons meeting or also conflicts that occur when several animals are meeting and each one trying to do the best and possibly having to anticipate what the other one is going to do and so and it's a theory that a mathematical theory that started only relatively late in the late 30s by the efforts of an economist this was Oscar Morgenstern Mm -hmm. and of a superb mathematician this was John von Neumann Mm. They got together, and uh, during the Second World War in, in Princeton, they started writing this book, uh, which they originally wanted to call The Theory of Rational Behavior. And then they had this wonderful stroke of uh, luck. Uh, they, they called it Game Theory, mm. and the name really uh, caught on. And But it is not so much about uh, games. It doesn't tell you how to play chess or poker or so, but it uses the terminology of games, mm-hmm. uh, of parlor games in particular. It uses notions of player, that's the individuals who are engaged in the conflict, of strategy, it's essentially the program that they are following, of payoff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, uh, this was a theory that caught uh, very quickly the interest of uh, mathematicians, young mathematicians like the brilliant John Nash, and also the interest of journalists. And eventually, even economists got uh, got interested in it. But I am particularly interested by the fact that then uh, some evolutionary biologists, such as John Maynard Smith and Bill Hamilton, used these ideas uh, to describe animal behavior. Uh, all the applications uh, to human behavior had previously assumed practically as an axiom that the players were rational. Of course, you could not make this assumption when you have animals uh, interacting. But uh, nevertheless, it worked very well. And uh, eventually, this evolutionary game theory, which worked without the axiom of rationality, but which Uh, considered whole populations of players, and not just two players interacting and trying to outguess each other, but whole populations where the individuals meet, act according to their program, then reproduce and so on. This uh, this approach eventually also got uh, captured by economists who found that in their experiments they didn't find too much evidence for rational behavior, yeah. actually. Quite a few and of the re- recent years <coughs> of Nobel Prizes in economy have indeed. gone to this field, right? Yes, indeed. Uh, I think uh, 12 or 13 Nobel Prizes mm. so far, yes. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yes. And and you mentioned John Nash. Uh, he's one of the big names in this area, right? Yes. And uh, to, to the listeners, we should say that John Nash is the person who was being portrayed in the film A Beautiful Mind. Yes. And he suffered from schizophrenia or yes. something yes. like that. And 
died a few years ago in mm-hmm. a car accident, actually. But yes. he was quite old at that time. Yes, uh, he was born, I think, in uh, 1930 or mm. 28. And uh, he was a very brilliant young mathematician who uh, took game theory over from uh, John von Neumann. Yeah. And... Uh, Changed it tremendously, he did. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and and uh, he did this when he was uh, twenty years old. Really, he introduced uh, new notions of equilibria. He introduced new methods of how to describe uh, bargaining problems and so on. It was absolutely brilliant and fantastic, mm-hmm. but it seemed to John Nash himself as if this was too simple. So mathematics was too simple for him. He was such a uh, big uh, uh, thinker that he took on uh, more difficult problems mm. in mathematics without connection with, with mm. game theory and solved one after the next. He was uh, one of the most brilliant mathematicians until at around 1960 when he was barely 30 years old or so, these uh, terrible symptoms of schizophrenia, yeah. paranoia also erupted. And the touching story is that uh, he was not given up, uh, neither by Princeton University nor by his wife. Mm. And eventually, after an ordeal of maybe 30 years or so, he more or less recovered normality. And uh, then it was found that he could get the Nobel Prize. He he got it in, I think, uh, 1998 or so. But the mathematicians were joking because he got the Nobel Prize for this very simple mathematics, (laughs) whereas he had made much more complicated uh, uh, investigations. And then, um, I think that was 2013 or 2015, he got the Abel Prize, which is the most prestigious prize in mathematics for his other work. And he was uh, there in Oslo to collect the prize together with his wife, and they returned to New York. So they went, stepped into a taxi and had a fatal accident. Yes. Died on, both on the spot. Yes, it yes. was a very dramatic yes. uh, situation. I remember that. I heard that he, I don't know if this is a myth, but that in some interview uh, in his late years, he said, he, the journalist asked if, he had got rid of the imaginary mm. persons that walked with him all the time and talked to him. I mean, f- from the schizophrenia, mm. hallucinations. Mm. And he should have said that, no, 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 they are still around me. I just have learned to ignore uh, what they say, which is quite yes. interesting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I also heard this story. I fully believe it. So, yes. I mean, uh, I, I knew him. He, he was always uh, tense and uh, one had the feeling he was under control. He mm-hmm. really had to keep himself uh, under control all yeah. the time. Yes. Okay, uh, right now we are sitting at Villa Breivik at Lidinge. We've had a three-day conference on the theme of what is life. And the reason for that is that we are now in Swedish publishing for the 75th anniversary of this book written by Erwin Schrödinger Mm -hmm. in 1944. He was a quantum physicist who wrote a book, a quite speculative book, on the, the question, what is life? Can you tell us a little bit more of Sch- about Schrödinger? What was he? What kind of guy was he? Well, uh, Schrödinger was a brilliant uh, Viennese uh, physicist who was remarkable for the mobility, both in the geographical viewpoint as from the intellectual viewpoint. 
so uh, he, he studied physics in, in Vienna. He wanted to study with Boltzmann, so eminent mm. uh, physicist. Uh, but uh, just when he uh, enrolled at the university, Boltzmann committed suicide. But nevertheless, Schrödinger was very influenced by the prevailing theories at the Institute of uh, Physics, uh, uh, theories of, of Boltzmann. And so he started working on statistical mechanics, probability theory. Then there was the First World War. He uh, was uh, enlisted and had to serve in the army. And afterwards, he started, uh, he, it was already a bit late in his career, but uh, he, he was in short succession professor in Jena, in Stuttgart, in Breslau, and then finally in Zurich. Mm -hmm. And it, so we are now in the mid-20s, uh, and it's only then that he really made his big breakthrough. He was already everywhere considered a brilliant physicist, but uh, that was a year when he published uh, in short succession four papers on quantum mechanics, which were together with some other papers by Dirac and Heisenberg, absolutely fundamental to the field. And then he got the Nobel Prize in 1933, I think. Mm. And he was, uh, after Zurich, he went to Berlin as successor of Max Planck, Mm -hmm. most prestigious position. But he left uh, Berlin in 1933 because he uh, detested the National Socialists and he went to Oxford. Um, that's where he got the Nobel the Prize. the country had started to become fascist. In 1933, uh, Hitler had taken power. Yeah, and, that's right, and, yeah. Uh, Schrödinger himself, he was not of Jewish origin, but, but he was such a vehement um, uh, adversary of National Socialism that he found he, he couldn't stand it any longer. Mm. He went to Oxford, and then after a few years, he went in 1936, he came back to Austria, which was not yet annexed by the Third Reich, yes. but had a kind of mild fascist dictatorship. Yeah. He became professor there, but then uh, uh, in 1938, uh, Hitler invaded Austria, and uh, so uh, Schrödinger had to emigrate a second time from mm -hmm. the, uh, from the uh, Third Reich. And he went, uh, by luck, he found a position in uh, Dublin, uh, which was then during the war a uh, neutral country, and he was in an institute for advanced study. And by statute, he was required to give at least one public lecture every year. And uh, in '43, he gave a public lecture on what is life. And actually, it was about genetics. And this was a topic that had interested him on the side already since 20 years. And this book had an incredible impact. Mm -hmm. It was a very short book, barely 90 pages. Um, it was a mixture of speculations and of uh, uh, propagating some ideas from a guy called Delbrück about the effect of... Uh, radiation on mutation, and it gave some estimate of the possible size of a gene, and in particular it mentioned that the gene could be something like an aperiodic crystal. Mm -hmm. This was at the time when nobody had any idea what a gene could look like, but this idea uh, was incredibly influential, and within, I think, 10 days, almost to the day, after the public lecture of Schrödinger, the double helix was discovered. Ten years. Ten years. Ten years, And yes. this by people who were uh, all declared that they had been 
definitely influenced, uh, they changed the whole field because they had read the, the book yeah. by Schrödinger. For instance, Jimmy Watson said he had been polarized mm-hmm. by reading this book. And so, um, interesting thing is, however, that uh, Schrödinger himself did not seem to be so impressed by this. By his um, own book? By, not so much. By, well, he was probably impressed by the problems in his own book, which went in a different direction, actually, than what, uh, what these physicists found. Mm. Uh, Schrödinger, in his book, um, uh, speculated that there must be some un, yet unknown laws of physics to explain how life works. And what these guys who were, to a large part, physicists actually turned into genetics. But these guys found, and guys and one lady, Rosalind Franklin, what they found was actually uh, that uh, you didn't need new laws. Mm. Precisely those laws that Schrödinger and his colleagues had discovered, precisely the Schrödinger equation of quantum mechanics, ah. sufficed to explain the double helix. Uh-huh. And uh, so they found uh, not a mysterious new law, but a gadget. That's fantastic. And, but but Schrödinger, uh, I found no, I could see no no trace of this. He w- does not seem to have really registered the impact of this double helix. He, he knew, of course, that this was discovered. Watson and Crick wrote to him and uh, said, said uh, they are, are so grateful to him also. But he himself uh, seems not to have reacted to this, which is quite paradoxical. Fascinating. And I know that you almost met him when you were a young boy. I, I did by chance meet him. I crossed him in the street. My father, I was walking with my father. My father was a PhD in, in physics and knew him and pointed him out uh, ah. discreetly and respectfully. Ah, okay. And I remember him, uh, yes. But uh, then when I started studying a few years later, Schrödinger had already passed away. Uh-huh. Yes. I see. Um, and and this book is now coming out in Swedish in the series books that we do, uh, Fritanke Publisher, together with the Royal Swedish Academy mm-hmm. of Sciences, a series of books that that is considered very influential in the history of science. So, so this is the first book, and it seems mm. like a good choice. Yes, it is a wonderful <laughs> choice. I really cannot think of, of any book in the 20th century that had such an impact on, no. on the evolution of science. No, no, maybe that's right. But you are, uh, in Sweden, you are known to Swedish readers uh, because of another book. It's a book about the Vienna Circle uh, that we published um, three years ago, I think, in Swedish. Uh, Wienkretsen, it's called in Swedish. Tell us about what was the Vienna Circle. Well, the Vienna Circle was a group of uh, mathematicians and philosophers uh, in Vienna in the 1920s, uh, actually from 1924 to 1936, uh, it was barely 12 years. And the interesting thing was uh, that they had a program, uh, which is nowadays called logical positivism. But uh, more important that this program was actually the disagreement among each other. They were uh, having usually very different ideas, but they wanted to sit together and work it out. Mm. And this uh, incredible interdisciplinarity of the mathematicians, the philosophers, physicists, there were lawyers and economists in that small group, sometimes 20, sometimes 30 people, uh, was uh, extremely fruitful. It was really uh, a highlight of, the, uh, of modern thinking, I believe. It, it belonged in Vienna to a great tradition that started with 
physicists like Mach and Boltzmann. They had been one generation before that. And uh, these, these uh, um, members of the Vienna Circle were in some sense the children of Mach and Boltzmann. And they were fascinated by Bertrand Russell, by Wittgenstein, another Viennese who uh, did not uh, join them, but who influenced them tremendously. They were, some of them were idolizing uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein. Mm. They were also uh, contemporaries of Karl Popper, who surrounded the circle, so to speak, but was never invited to attend. There okay. was also uh, Carnap, who especially later in immigration in the United States had a huge impact on analytical philosophy. But he was a member. He was a member. Of the Vienna yes. Circle. Yes, he was not a Viennese. Nobody is perfect. <laughs> he came from Germany. <laughs> but uh, but uh, he was uh, a member. And uh, after a few years, he was actually something like the flag bearer ah. of the Vienna Circle. Yes. Who else was in the group? Well, there was uh, so, so nominal head was Moritz Schlick, a mm. philosopher from northern Germany who made his career, uh, I mean, the most important step in his career was when he wrote uh, Space and Time. He was one of the first philosophers to understand the impact of Albert Einstein. Mm -hmm. And he became a very close uh, friend and a champion of Albert Einstein at a time when Einstein's ideas were still very hotly contested. Mm -hmm. So he was, uh, he was then appointed, thanks, uh, probably to the help of, of Albert Einstein, he was appointed in Vienna. And uh, there were uh, Hans Hahn, this was a mathematician, who already, before the First World War, had hoped to uh, enlarge uh, the discussion group that he had, which always met uh, in the coffee house, uh, to, to enlarge it by incorporating some uh, university philosophers. That's what he did after the First World War by uh, attracting... Uh, Moritz Schlick. And there was another extremely interesting uh, guy. This was Otto Neurath, who was a kind of polymath. He came from uh, social sciences uh, and was a social reformer, uh, quite extreme in some of his ideas and uh, amazingly diverse. This was uh, the heading heads of the group. And then there were the younger people like Carnap or Gödel, for instance. Mm, Kurt Gödel. Uh, started studying at that time uh, in 1924. He was uh, already spotted as a remarkable talent and he was invited and he was sitting in the sessions of the Vienna Circle as the youngest and most silent uh, member. Uh, and of course, uh, then f a few years later on, he produced his uh, seminal work on the incompleteness theorem. And he was yeah. certainly uh, uh, producing the most important work among all uh, people uh, surrounding the Vienna Circle. He is considered, I guess, to be the most influential logician in, the, in many hundred years. Yes. Uh, Einstein said uh, the most influential since, uh, since Aristotle. Yeah. But Douglas Hofstetter said, who is Aristotle? <laughs> this was uh, much more important. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, uh, I, I wouldn't go so far as that. But in any case, the interesting thing is that many years later, when uh, the, the notes uh, that uh, Gödel had left behind were deciphered, was deciphered uh, it was found out that he was not sharing at all the official view of the Vienna Circle. No. He was not at all a logical positivist. No. He was not at all persuaded by Wittgenstein or mm. even interested by Wittgenstein, uh, but he was so silent. He, he belonged, in fact, to some 
almost a different century. Mm. But I think that without the influence of the Vienna Circle, he would not have started thinking Probably. about the logical basis of mathematics. Because you could, I guess you can yes. say he was a mathematical Platonist. He believed he, in, yes. in, in, in that mathematical objects exist in some sense. Exactly, yes. And his incomplete theorem shows that truth is not equivalent to provability. The tru- truth, mathematical truth, has a, an existence on its own, so to speak. So to speak, yes. So to speak, uh, yes. I know. It's Whenever one says something about Gödel, there are logicians who say, oh, you should have mentioned this yes, or that condition, <laughs> yes. But basically it's yeah, that, yes. Yeah, yeah mm. but it's, he's, he's very difficult to understand, yes. so you have to talk about him in metaphorical terms, I think. Mm. But, um, yeah, and then, as you just mentioned, then Douglas Hofstadter wrote his famous book, 1979, yes. I think, Gödel Escherbach. Yes. That influenced me a lot when I read it as a teenager. And yes, same here. Yes, a wonderful book. <laughs> yes. Fantastic. Unfortunately, Gödel had died a couple yes. of years before, yes. That's really and this sad. is also a sad and paradoxical thing, that uh, Gödel was also suffering from persecution mania and uh, was so afraid of being poisoned yeah that he stopped eating yeah but the the vienna circle uh, itself had a very dramatic uh, situation and ended very dramatically can you tell us indeed a uh, yes uh, it's also a tragic story uh, in 19 uh, well let me first say that in 1934 we had in austria a civil war and the social democratic half of the population was voting social democrats the social democratic party was suppressed mm-hmm. and consequently uh, those who were uh, left wing members in particular Otto Neurath could no longer return to Vienna uh, that was the first blow the next blow was in 1936 some deranged student a former student of Moritz Schlick who had actually written his PhD with Moritz Schlick stalked him for years actually and killed him in 1936. This was practically the end of the Vienna Circle. Everything else was then just, uh, uh, well, uh, pathetic uh, reminders of it, but but, uh, practically everyone had uh, understood the sign on the wall and they all eventually, practically all, emigrated even before uh, the National Socialists took over in Vienna. Mm. And they went mostly to England and to the United States, and they had a tremendous impact on the evolution of the Anglo-Saxon philosophy, and in particular on analytical philosophy. Mm. Moritz Schlick, he was shot, I think. He was shot on the stairs of the university, yes. By this young By student. And he got imprisoned but was released? Yes, he was imprisoned. Uh, He got uh, actually a very short uh, sentence considering what he did. He was uh, was, uh, sentenced for 10 years. But after one and a half year, the Nazis came and one of the first things they did was to release him. Why did they do that? Uh, well, uh, he argued that uh, Moritz Schlick, uh, who himself was not of Jewish origin, was a friend of Jewish ideas. Mm-hmm. And this was enough to place him in the good books of the Nazis. <laughs> so it's terrible. He was uh, released in, in 38 already. And um, actually, the, the strange thing is that after the Second World War, uh, a philosopher in Vienna wrote about uh, this uh, Vienna Circle and that uh, Moritz Schlick had been shot by a psychopath. 
and uh, he, uh, Nailberg, the psychopath, was um, um, calling him to uh, was was uh, making a process against him. Really? Yes. Uh, fortunately, uh, Nailberg, the uh, so psychopath, uh, died before uh, he could uh, commit another murder. Oh. But he 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 started now. Oh, yeah, fantastic! Yes. What a uh, story! Had, yes, it is. Uh, and what? When was this? This was in fifty-two. Fifty-two. Okay. Mm-hmm. I see. Okay, very, very interesting. Uh, Carl Sigmund, thank you very much for joining our pod. Thank you very much.